I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this week on the show, we are discussing everything it takes to execute a perfect shot with someone who's executed more perfect shots on deer in high-pressure situations than anyone else I know, Taylor Chamberlain. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Life. And we are continuing shooting month today. And we are chatting with someone who has really perfected the act of shooting more than almost anybody else I know. Me and my buddy Tony were talking about this the other day, trying to think about who would be a good fit for this episode. And we were trying to think who does this successfully, who shoots perfectly accurately, effectively, and does it more often than anybody else. There's a lot of successful hunters out there, but I do not think there's anyone else I know in my circle that successfully does it more than Taylor Chamberlain. Taylor Chamberlain, if you don't know, he's been on the podcast in the past. He is the urban hunting dude. I went and hunted with him last year in DC, got to see what that was all about. He runs the Hunt Urban YouTube channel and He'll explain this a little bit more when he hops on here in a second, but Taylor's whole thing is that he hunts in this area with with a super, super high deer density, which requires year-round management, and so he's able to hunt all year round with essentially like a, it's like a nuisance deer type situation, and so he's killing so, so, so many more deer than any of us do because of that, and so he has had to really really get good at shooting and he has had so many opportunities to practice and go and live through that situation right i might kill a handful of deer a year he's doing that times 50 and he does that 
in incredibly tight, high-pressure situations because he's hunting in neighborhoods. He's hunting in backyards, and it's got to be perfect. This was something that really got hammered home to me when I spent time with him last fall is that he, I mean, we all want things to go well, right? But he requires them to be excellent, perfect. Nothing less than that is acceptable because the margins for error in these neighborhoods are so, so fine. And the ramifications are so, so high. So that's why Taylor is really the, just a great guy to sit down and dive deep into this with because he's really turned the volume up on every single aspect of shooting. Want to know how to dial up your bow and tune it just right? Well, Taylor has taken it to the umpteenth degree. Want to get really good at developing a shot process or a practice regimen? He's got it dialed. Taylor is very detail-oriented and, as we've just described, a perfectionist. And so today, we're going to dive into everything from you know, what his early struggles were. We're going to talk about how he thinks about his choice in bow, criteria when choosing what the right setup is for him when it comes to a sight, when it comes to arrows, when it comes to broadheads. So we do talk gear for like the first, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes or so, really getting into you know, at a high level, what are the things you need to be looking for when trying to get the most accurate, effective bow? Not like a sexy, fast bow. Not like, hey, what are we going to take out to the mountains and shoot 80 yards at a mule deer? No, how do you kill a whitetail so it's dead in 10 seconds and lying 40 feet away? That's what we're trying to do here. So Taylor walks through that kind of setup. Uh, we talk through everything about his practice regimen. How can you simulate high-pressure situations? How can you practice better? Uh, we talk through the whole shooting process, the different things he thinks about as he goes through that whole cycle, what he says, what he's physically doing, how he manages his nerves, everything like that. We have a lot of interesting conversation around you know, in the field, implications you, you know how to read a deer's body language how to interpret whether now is the right time to shoot or not where really is the best place to shoot a deer if you need that super fast guaranteed kill we talk through all those types of things we get into some interesting conversations around even you know how we might want to adjust our goals or plans when hunting to really ramp up our experience so we can become a perfect shot someday so that's the conversation today it's a good one taylor's fun he's funny He's great at what he does, and I learned stuff, and I'm sure you are as well. But before we get to that, I do want to give you a quick heads up on something new that's coming down the line. Uh, I am going to be, or I, I have already, started picking out monthly gear picks of the different stuff that Meat Eater is selling now these days on our website. I don't know if you have realized this or not, but Meat Eater not only has brands like First Light, or FHF, or Phelps Game Calls, but we also are now stocking all sorts of other gear, mostly gear that me and the other folks on the team have purposely asked for to be stocked on the site because we like it, because we use it. Uh, we're becoming more and more of an online purveyor and merchandiser of you know, the stuff that we really like. So I'm going to start picking monthly picks, a few items that I'm using that I like, that I recommend to you, and we're putting them out there right now, at least for the time being, on the Wired Hunt homepage. So right now, this month, I've got a set of recommendations that are kind of tied into this whole shooting month, right? It's all about getting better at shooting. So I picked a few items that I'm using as I try to get better at being a better shot. So you can find this at themediator.com slash wired-to-hunt. It's a little wordy, I realize. Or 
I'm hoping you already go to the Wired Hunt page. You can just go to TheMeatEater.com, and then if you hover over Pursuits, you're going to see the logo for Wired Hunt there. Click that, and that takes you to the homepage. You should know this already. This is where we have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of deer hunting articles. I'm writing. Tony Peterson's writing. All sorts of folks. Tony Hansen, Alex Gilstrom, Andy May's been in there. Uh, who else? We got a whole bunch of great people that are contributing to this, but really Bomar Tonic's another one who's been writing a lot recently. If you want to get better at deer hunting and you're listening to all these podcast episodes and you want to dive deeper, the website's a great place to go for that. You can also be seeing all this on our newsletter. We share every Monday. If you're not subscribed to the Wired Hunt Weekly Newsletter, that's going to help you find all this. But the point being is that I'm adding this little quick little gear section where each month I'm going to pick a few things that I personally like. And this week we've got this shooting month selection. So what I've got featured here, you'll see this if you go to the website. You'll see this new archery target I just got about a month ago. It's called the M1 Matrix Archery Target. This is like a super heavy-duty modular target. So it's this foam. It's this heavy-duty foam, but it's in like little, um, I guess it's hexagons. Is that right? Six sides. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, six is, I think, a hexagon. That's embarrassing if I'm wrong about that. Um, But (laughs) yes, that's correct. So it's a hexagon-shaped target that's comprised of a bunch of smaller hexagon foam pieces. So if you shoot out the central foam hexagon, you can just pop in a new one. You pull one out from the outside, put that one into the center. So it's a pretty nice idea. This one also has a really cool meat eater branded kind of bands around the outside. I've been using it. Giannis has been using it. I think Joe Rogan's been using it uh, and it's handling everything we're firing at it. And it seems like the kind of target that I could sit outside and keep it out there for years And it's going to be just fine. Super, super high durability. I'm digging that. So that's one of my recommendations. If you want to invest in a top-end, long-lasting, you know, really nice outside target, this seems like a great option. My second pick is First Light's Wick Short Sleeve T-shirt. This is like their super simple, lightweight wool T-shirt. I'm wearing one right now. It's basically my outfit all summer. I'm either wearing the T-shirt or I'm wearing the lightweight hoodie version of this if I'm out fishing or something and I want to throw the hood over. But the t-shirt, it's what I wear when I'm out shooting outside. It's just quick drying, super comfortable. Because of that wool, it doesn't get stinky. It manages odor really well. So it's just a sweet shirt to wear all summer. It's uh, If I were going to buy one piece to wear for like my off-season whitetail stuff, shooting, food plotting, scouting, this is the thing I'm going to be wearing all the time. My third recommendation is Vortex's Impact 1000 Rangefinder. It's actually on sale starting this week on the Meat Eater store. So we've got a 15% off discount we can give you guys on this right now. And this is just like their simple entry line rangefinder. It's it's all you need in a rangefinder for bow hunting whitetails, but nothing more. And that's what gets it a nice, you know, for rangefinders, an affordable price point. I think it's $199, something like that. It's it's going to work. It's small. It's lightweight. It doesn't have all the fancy schmancy dancy stuff that maybe you're going to want to want if you're shooting a thousand yards, but I'm not shooting a whitetail a thousand yards. So check this one out. It just does the job. And the last thing I got through on there was Caldwell's dead shot combo shooting bag. This is like a front and back shooting bag. I picked this up last year, I think, and started using it 
because I don't have like a lead sled. I don't have one of those big fancy things to hold your gun in when you're trying to sight it in and trying to make sure it's dead on. And as we discussed recently on the podcast, right, it's time to get just as serious about really hammering in our firearm accuracy as it is with our archery. So I was like, well, I can at least buy some of these shooting bags so I can have a steadier platform when I'm practicing and when I'm sighting with my gun. They're only 25 bucks, but they just work. They're simple. They're not too huge and bulky, but they give you that solid platform when you're trying to shoot. So that's an easy, quick $25 investment. If you already don't have something like that, check them out. It's pretty nice, pretty simple. So that's the feature gear for July. Check it out. Again, it's on the Wired Hunt homepage over at Meat Eater. You can go to themeateater.com slash wired dash two. That's T-O dash hunt. And I'll update this once a month with different ideas. I'm sure once we get into hunting season, I'll have some of my favorite gear that I wear during the year or tools I use. And I'll just try to think up of you know different useful things that I've been using in the field that you know might be helpful to some of you folks if you're in the market too. So check it out. I'll keep you posted. Appreciate you tuning in. Appreciate checking out everything we're doing over at Meat Eater. Uh, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to find ways to create the best content in the world, but then also fund that entire content mechanism and machine that we're building, pumping out new shows, new podcasts, lots and lots of articles, uh, all to hopefully keep you entertained, help you become a better hunter and have more fun out there. So that is my little news update. I think with that, we should just get into my chat with Taylor. This is a good one. We dive deep into a whole lot of good stuff. I'm ready to grab my bow and start shooting. I hope you are too. Let's get into it. All right. With me now on the show again for, I think, appearance number three is my buddy Taylor Chamberlain. Welcome back, Taylor. Thanks for having me, Mark. And you are correct. Lucky number three. It's an honor every time but uh <laughs> as we keep diving down it becomes more of an honor so thanks for having uh, me on man. well hey I, I appreciate you making the time i think this one's gonna be a really fun one because in the past we've kind of talked all about hunting in the urban environments where you spend your time and, and first it was just like how do you do it and then the second time it was how did i do it with you and all that crazy stuff that happened which was very eye-opening and now today taylor i am pulling you in to the madness of shooting month here on Wired Hunt. We're doing a full month all about shooting, how to become a more effective, accurate hunter with a bow or a firearm or whatever your tool of choice is. And I was brainstorming. Me and Tony Peterson, my buddy Tony, were brainstorming about who the right people would be to come on the show for this month. And, you know, there's like tournament archers and there's, you know, professional coaches and, there's all these different kind of categories of people who would be worth talking to, right? But we got to thinking, maybe the best kind of person to talk to would be someone who has actually shot at and effectively put down, you know, a ton of animals. Someone who does this thing that we want to do, but has done it more than anyone else, right? I may be, in a good year, maybe I kill five or six deer in a year. And that's like a great year for, for a lot of people, right? And I only have that many opportunities to go out there and actually practice what I've been, or sorry, execute on the thing I've been practicing all year, right? I don't get a whole ton of opportunities to actually have to go through the whole thing in real life and perform perfectly what I've been trying to practice for months. So as we started thinking about who does this a lot more than most people, you were the first person that came to mind, Taylor. I think most people know your unique situation out there in D.C. 
but can you give us like the really quick kind of snippet of of what you do as a hunter and and how it is that you have more experience killing deer probably than almost anyone i know yeah well thank you i'm i'm honored that i was at the top of a list that's uh Normally, I'm not at the top of good lists for free people, so that was yeah. There's like, other there's, there's the other lists you're on top of the... at the wedding. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, I live right outside of Washington D.C. in Northern Virginia, and we have an insane deer overpopulation. So where there should be ten to twelve deer per square mile, the best guess uh, they can't even quantify. The best guess is you know four hundred and twenty. Uh, plus deer per square mile. So we have a huge overpopulation of deer, which results in me being allowed to hunt year round. So we have a year round deer season here to try and reduce the deer numbers. Um, and I hunt year round. Um, I think my wife actually likes it that I'm gone more than I'm home. No, um, yeah, this is your best I marriage mean, hack. I, yeah, exactly. I mean, what did you say? What's my best marriage hack? No, this is your best marriage. Oh fact. yeah. The fact absolutely. that you do this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause in, in 10 years of marriage, I've only been home for two. So <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, um, you know, I hunt anywhere from, from 175 to 225 plus days a year. So literally, you know, if the weather's good, there's a high probability regardless of the day that I'm in a tree. Um, in, you know, the hunts are short. I'm walking, if anybody has seen what I look like, it's pretty obvious. I don't walk far from my truck to a tree. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we're, we're walking short distances and, um, it's a quick hunt, but cause the deer are either there or not, but, um, you know, I'm hunting on properties as small as a quarter acre. And so I have a lot of reps, uh, a lot of opportunities to harvest deer, a lot of successful harvest of deer. Um, it's imperative that, if I do draw my bow and put an arrow in the air, it is 100% a requirement that that arrow hits its mark and puts the, the animal down as fast as possible. And, you know, as sportsmen, we all try to have deer go down as fast as possible. But for me, the difference in an animal running 50 yards and piling up versus 150 yards and piling up is, I mean, is make or break. Uh, that is, that's the difference between an animal getting recovered on property versus me having to go knock on doors and potentially have to pay to have a pool cleaned, which if I have to do that again, I'm going to have a, I'm going to need more merit tax. My wife will be pissed about that. So, um, it, it's imperative that my gear is dialed and my kit is dialed and me as a archer, uh, is, is absolutely top shape because I can't afford to have, uh, any mishaps. So, yeah. yeah. Now that I've lived that experience with you, I, I know <laughs> how important it is to not have to go knocking on doors at nine o'clock at night and bothering people in the dark. All the crap that <laughs> yeah. can happen from that. You, you found out firsthand what, what can happen. And I mean, really, you just don't know what's behind the door. And, yeah. and once you've shot a deer and it is nine o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night, like you, it's very hard to be like, Oh, I'll just come back tomorrow, right? Because that animal is has expired. Like you want to get it, you want to recover it, you want. Uh, you know, I'm fortunate that we have a great program here, like a lot of other states do. But it's even more uh, necessary here, where we're feeding the homeless and and the needy with um, with this venison. So, like, 
if I shoot a deer, I want it to go to use and I want to recover it. And it's, you know, if you have to go knock on the door at 10 o'clock at night, you're probably not getting a favorable response from the person answering the door, regardless of their stance on hunting. But, you know, even more so, you just don't know what what's on the other side of the door as far as reception towards who you are and what you're knocking on the door for. So it, it's very, very important that that deer piles up in sight. If you don't see it go down or hear it go down, man, that is like the worst feeling that I could ever imagine having. You just know that something potentially could go wrong. Mm-hmm. So you've got to execute perfectly, like like more perfectly than almost anybody else because your margins for error with with all this other kind of halo material around the hunt is 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 so much higher stakes than if I shot a deer on a hundred acre farm. So there's that. But then you're hunting almost every week of the year. And would you say you're going through this shot process at least every week a year almost or something like that? I mean, this is something you're not just I, doing a few times. This is something you're doing a lot, right? Yes, absolutely. And um and I will not draw my bow. And, and we can get into why, why I've gotten to this level, but I will not draw my bow and without going through the shot process that we're going to walk through um, here shortly. But I, I, I will not put my hand on the release and draw the bow back unless I walk through this process because it's that important and, and it, it's that necessary uh, for a successful harvest as far as I'm concerned. All right. So you, you, kill or harvest whatever you say you you do this more often and more effectively than maybe anybody else i know but i gotta ask you this were you always this good are you just ice cold do you have like zero uh nerves in your body have you always just been built to handle this kind of (laughs) stress test or was there a time in the past where you couldn't have performed this way absolutely I wish that I could say that I was so cool and that I was just had ice water running through my veins and I was always a star, but no, I, I was terrible, um, at archery for a while. So, I mean, I taught myself how to hunt. I didn't have anybody, um, along the way that, that really showed me the ropes. I mean, I, uh, listened to a lot of podcasts. I consumed every bit of hunting media possible. Um, you know, reading books, magazines, etc., and uh, there was a very long and steep learning curve for me to go from, you know, a, a city boy who had never hunted before in his life and had nobody to talk to about hunting uh, to to the level that I'm at today. And so, I mean, that's actually what got me into the hunting industry uh, was that I wanted to try and just put whatever information out there that I could to help anyone out there that was looking for help because I just wanted to try and shorten somebody's learning curve to not make it as long and, and brutal as mine was. So there was tons, and I mean tons of uh, steps along the way that were learning opportunities or uh, things that I had to learn from, of whether it be blowing a hunt or screwing up a shot or misreading deer's body language and not shooting at the right time or the right placement or um you know not letting that deer turn like that extra couple degrees i mean really entrenching myself into trying to become the best hunter that i could be uh so it was a long bumpy road with you know some lost deer some wounded deer some 
some missed shots and you know i'm i'm proud of the journey that i've taken to get to where i am now where i I couldn't tell you the last time that i lost a deer um or didn't have a a deer drop in sight so i'm i'm kind of proud of of getting to the point of hopefully having ice water in my veins and Mm -hmm. i mean you know, people say that, but that's not true. It's really just developing a process that you can rely on in a high stress environment, uh, which is what your body is going through when you're dealing with that adrenaline dump of, of getting ready to shoot a deer and shooting a deer. And, um, that's why we do it. Right. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it would be great if it was, uh, if I, I was born this way, but I was most certainly was not, it was a, a, a difficult journey to say the least. So, so you got to forgive me for forcing you to dig up past traumas, but I gotta, <laughs> I gotta ask you this. Can you, can you think back on some of those early days and point to any single moment maybe, or experience that was most either most illustrated your struggles or maybe represented like a turning point where you said, Never again. I can't keep screwing this up or I can't ever have this thing happen again. Was there any kind of single hunt or shot or situation that just kind of yes represented that struggle? Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell so, me what that felt like. Tell so me what happened. When I, when I first started getting into urban hunting, I was out at a property with my buddy Billy. And uh, he was hunting about 100 yards from me. We got set up and he shot a deer within like within the first hour of being in the tree. And I was jacked. We like watched the deer drop and we're texting back and forth. I'm like all excited. And I was set up over, uh, you know, over a well hub spot. So like, you know, the little pipe that comes out of the ground about 18 inches where it's capped off. Yep. And so this particular little, little well tap point, uh, was leaking. It was dripping water and the deer were coming into it and licking the water out of this little spot. And it was a killer spot. Um, and so this deer comes in, I'm all jacked up. I draw my bow back. Like as soon as the pin gets on her, I just punch the trigger and just crack. And she takes off and I'm like, yeah, I got one too. I mean, this was like very, this might've been my like third or fourth urban hunt ever and um the deer runs off and billy and i are texting i'm all excited and that deer turned into an absolute nightmare recovery uh we looked all night for it knocking on doors uh really had a couple of incredibly pissed off homeowners <laughs> one of them ended up calling the cops on me mm. uh after the fact so it's a very long story i won't get into the minutia of it but um, I knocked on the door, asked for permission to, to track, was granted permission, went in. Then the next day, the police are at my house, and um, the guy had tried to rescind permission and was trying to charge me with trespassing. And I was like, you can't do that. <laughs> you know? And, Without telling uh, so me? That, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, you can't like give me permission and then say, ha no, now you're trespassing. <laughs> you know, here's your ticket. Um, but it, it, he was, uh, a powerful litigator and was trying to pull some strings. It was just a nightmare. The guys, oh, inevitably what happened was the guy's wife got pissed that he gave me permission. And mm-hmm. He was trying to handle it, but that deer was a nightmare and, uh, never recovered the deer. 
really caused some problems in the HOA um, that Billy had taken me to uh, to hunt, and I just felt sick to my stomach on a on a multiple levels on the fact that I didn't perform when I really wanted to, um, and just kind of like my own personal disappointment. But even more so than that, the level of disappointment that I felt for like screwing up my buddy's spot getting in trouble like with the police. I mean, I didn't get in trouble, but having to deal with that, like causing that issue, alerting homeowners to the presence. I mean, everything went wrong or was wrong. And I just, I remember thinking to myself, man, like you can't do that again. Like you have to make sure that, that you're, you're hitting these deer perfectly. And I think that that was really important for me because it kind of, it led me down the path of like really striving for perfection. And I, Anyone who knows me will, will, you know, agree that I'm super anal. I'm very detail oriented and I'm always trying to reflect on past hunts to try to figure out how to perfect them in the future. And that's kind of like in a nutshell, why my kit is so dialed and my, like everything is so, so perfect is because if any one little thing goes wrong, that drives me nuts because I'm OCT and I try to fix it the next time. And I just kind of work through that system. And so this was like a major thing for me. Like I lost sleep over it really upset me. And so that was in September and, um, you know, fast forward to November, it's the rut. Um, and I had never shot a decent buck before I, I killed like a little six pointer, um, like, you know, outside his ears, like probably would have been a future booner. Uh, like a year and a half old six pointer, uh-huh. uh, with a muzzle loader. And then I had shot, um, one buck with my bow, I think, but these were on like farms and I hadn't really shot like a good urban buck. And I really wanted to shoot just like a decent, I mean, at the time, like all, if I could have shot 115 inch eight pointer, I probably would have mounted it. Like I was yeah. so that's just where all I wanted was an eight pointer or better. And, um, this absolute giant 140 inch plus eight pointer or you know might have had like a sticker off his right cheek too but i i didn't even pay attention comes kind of just trotting through in the middle of the day right under me um and i was completely unprepared i grabbed my bow and i'm like matt 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 and like before i know it i'm at full draw and an arrow's in the air and it's over his back and he's gone. Mm-hmm. And I sat on my phone. This was funny. I had a Blackberry at the time and I was oh, playing yeah. that uh, Brick Breaker game <laughs> on it. Yeah, I remember Brick, that. Brick Breaker was the greatest tree stand time passing thing ever. And those Blackberries uh, battery life is just amazing. But uh, I was playing Brick Breaker and... I almost threw my phone out of the stand and instead of throwing my phone out of the stand, I sat down and I wrote down uh, a note and I called it Taylor's requirements to come to full draw in the tree stand. Mm. And I wrote like a dissertation to myself of like, you will, I mean like literally like in, in order to come to full draw, you must, and you will. And, and um, you know, those are kind of like the backbone notes that have have really kind of grown over time but the the kind of general sense of it was like this is not like you're not going to put in the amount of time and effort 
and dedication that you're doing to this to just go F it up. Like you need to like make sure that this never happens again. And uh, that was really like the combination of that doe hunt and then missing that buck, like just drove me berserk. And um, I still live by those rules today. Right. Like um, I, I really make a point to, like I will not shoot a deer if things are not perfect and I will not shoot a deer if if I don't go through these steps to take from from the moment that my hand touches the riser of my bow until the till that shot breaks you know I have an exact um process that I go through and you kind of got to witness some of that firsthand so yeah. we hunted together one day and we had a pretty crazy hunt. Like there are deer everywhere. <laughs> there's cr- chaos everywhere. Um, and yes, you know, we had a deer come by, rate it, you know, within legal shooting light, but it, towards the last like five minutes of it, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she was at like 22 yards, 24 yards. I, I guarantee you, I could have shot that deer and killed it. However, it was not perfect. There was a lot of stuff going on and, you know, sometimes the best shot you can take is not taking a shot at all. And, um, you know, I remember when that deer left, you were like, why, why didn't you shoot it? I'm like, man, that, there's too much going on here. Yeah. And, and the way, like looking at her body language and what's going on and, um, it just wasn't right. And so that, you know, that's how I've gotten to that point is like, I've screwed up along the way and I've set these rules for myself and I'm just not going to do it unless it's, unless it's perfect because I've just experienced the, the wrong side of it enough to know what can happen. Yeah. And man, you might have just said the most important thing that we'll hear all month. The very most important thing that maybe everyone needs to get and like write down and not forget is that sometimes the very best shot is no shot at all. I mean, how many of us have felt rushed into a shot we shouldn't have taken or like the pressure of, "Ah, I can't let this moment get away. I got to take the shot. I mean, there's so many different examples of times where I'm sure we can look back and say, man, should have held off. You can never get that arrow back. I mean, I can point to many. Um, I mean, that is so important right there, regardless of any improvements you make to your shot process, just knowing that you don't need to take the shot. And sometimes you shouldn't when it's not right. I mean, that is, that is so important because the, the bad stuff that comes from a bad shot is just not worth it. It's just not. And, and every time, I mean, I, you know, I, I know a lot of, uh, you know, hunters and our little urban hunting community here. And I, I help out a lot on, um, you know, times where people lose a deer, can't find a deer whatever. And I would say, almost a hundred percent of the time, like 99% of the time when I meet up with somebody who's having trouble recovering a deer and I ask them, I'm like, okay, so what happened? They're like, man, I just, you know, they'll tell you their story, but it's always the same in the sense of they rushed the shot or they, they felt like they had to take a shot at that moment. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm convinced like we're all, predators right like we we wouldn't be here if either we like our direct ancestors or somebody down the line weren't good hunters and we kind of have these like subconscious predatory feelings like you know what to do 
And if you have to force yourself to take a shot when you're, when you're everything in you is telling you like, eh, like there's a reason for that. You need to listen to it and not be like, no, like I got to shoot him now, you know, cause that's when just bad stuff always will happen. Mm-hmm. And maybe it'll work out once or twice, but you're statistically in for, uh, for some trouble at some point. So just don't do it. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, The reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via 
convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. All right, so there's a lot of stuff you touched on there that I want to dive deep into. I really want to, I really want to know what Taylor Chamberlain's dissertation on when to draw the bow and and what all those perfect factors need to be are. Um, but maybe let, let's let's start where I think maybe this begins and then advance our way to that. So since you had this kind of season from hell where you realize you had to figure this thing out. Was 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 your gear choice and tuning and and kind of perfecting your gear set? Was that a big part of that Absolutely. process? Okay, I thought Absolutely. so. Absolutely. So so there are a couple. You know, hunting is part of what makes hunting cool. Is there's stuff you can control, like where you're sitting, how you got in there, what you smell like, the time you got there, like all these things that you can control. But there's a bunch of stuff you can't control, like the deer. And you know, in my in my my area like what's going on around you and uh so i try to maximize my opportunity to harvest a deer by perfecting what i can control and so when i thought about it one of the things that i can control is my bow my bow can be as perfectly optimized as possible my arrow can be as as perfectly built as possible it can be designed and set up to to have the highest efficiency or or the most forgiving both tune but also like weight and everything set up uh and my body me as the shooter can be optimized both mentally and physically to shoot a deer and so i set out to educate myself on all of those factors and then get the bow dialed, get the, you know, have a archery site that was perfected. I had an arrow rest that had the lowest probability of failure. I had a arrow that was designed and cut and, and, and made to be perfect, you know, even down to like my bow draw length. I mean, so I'm a, I'm a big guy, just like you are, um, Mark. I mean, I'm, you know, six, two, I could, I can comfortably shoot a bow at a 31 inch draw length. And if I was a tournament archer, I would be shooting a bow at a 31 inch draw length. However, I mean, having that, having your wingspan absolutely maximized uh, for me. And and I think it's, it's kind of highlighted because I have like really broad shoulders, but I mean, that's not where I wanted to be in a tree stand. So I even kind of dialed down. I, I fluctuated from like a 29 and a half inch draw length to where I am now, which is like just a skosh over 30. So like 30 and a quarter is where I like to run my boats at. But I mean, I I went into the the weeds on that. And so for anybody out there that's looking to like maximize their setup, you know, getting a bow that is, is a newer age bow. So it doesn't even have to be like a, you know, a brand new flagship bow, but like just the current bow technology out there, all the brands are awesome. Just get one that has, you know, within your budget, 
Uh, and buying a used one that's a year or two old is a great way to go about it if you're tight on cash or if you want to yeah. kind of like get the maximum um, value out of something because they're all really good. But just get one that has a smooth draw cycle that has maximum efficiency for uh, speed, right? And that's where. What do you mean by that? These bows. So, you know, like the older single cam model bows uh, were a little slower. But what, what I'm looking for now is like a newer, the newer bows, the technology is so good in, they're easier to tune, they hold the tune better, um, and, and especially with dual cams, you're able to get more energy transferred into the arrow. So what I'm looking for is the most efficient bow to tune, uh, and also one that'll hold its tune for the longest, because, I mean, a race car is no good if it's only you know, firing all cylinders the, the second that you take the wrenches off of it, and then it kind of goes to, to crap after. Um, and then I want the most energy transferred into the arrow possible. So I want the, the least amount of energy loss from, from my draw cycle uh, into the arrow. And that's where the tuning really comes in, is you're trying to perfect arrow flight, because that arrow is what's absorbing the energy, which is obviously what makes it fly down range, right? So, um you know, any modern bow will check this box. And, and it's really important for people to go out and shoot the bows. Like I would recommend that people don't go out and just max out. Like, you know, I have a buddy who loves to shoot an 80 pound bow because I think he just likes telling people he's shooting 80 pounds. Mm -hmm. Right. I would love to see him draw his bow in February when there are nine does underneath of him and you're trying to shoot one and you have like eight layers of clothes on because it's 12 degrees out, right? Like that's very, very difficult to do. There are times that, you know, if I see a deer coming in, in that same scenario, like I know that I need to draw early. And I like, I know that when I'm drawing my bow that I'm going to have to hold my draw for, I don't know, maybe like 90 seconds or so, just because by the time those deer get into where they need to be, I'm going to be exposed on the side of the tree and, and any movement will cause those deer to bust. Right. So, um, having the most efficient setup that you can have might be a 55 pound bow. That's fine. Like with modern technology, you're better off with something you can draw smoothly, like horizontally and easily than you are cranking up the weight and putting the performance setting on, like on your bow to where it's a very harsh, uh, draw cycle, right? So, so when you're maximizing your bow, you just want to make sure that you have something that you can draw smoothly that you're able to practice with a lot. That's the other thing is like, if you have an 80 pound bow and it hurts your shoulder to draw it more than seven times, like how many reps are you getting in? Probably not a lot. And, and we'll get down the road to that. Uh, but you know, for, for perfecting your equipment, you want to make sure that it's, you know, a relatively, uh, efficient bow. So anything built past like t- 2005 probably fits into this box, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but make sure you got new strings on it, good high quality strings, and then learn about the bow to where you can tune it. And so the next step that I like to go through is I super tune all my bows. And, um, for anyone who doesn't know, basically that's trying to get the arrow to fly as perfectly as possible. And so, uh, I go through a pretty long process of bare shaft tuning um, and and getting that bow dialed as as 
perfect as it can to where like I can take some bare shafts and I can shoot them at 40 yards and have them just hitting like in a softball size hole. And so that to me, I know that I could screw any broadhead on the front of that to have it fly well. But really what that's telling me is that that arrow is leaving the bow as perfect and cleanly as possible so that when it does hit something in the event that it hits bone, it's going to be pushing through as straight as possible to really have that momentum and kinetic energy to pull it through as opposed to potentially deflect off. And so the general theme that, that people will notice in all of my stuff is I'm trying to, to tune or prepare for an absolute worst case scenario and have success still in that worst case scenario. So like if you shoot a deer through the heart, it's going to run. Well, that's a bad example because I actually just found that if you shoot deer through the heart, they run further than the lungs. But if you put one (laughs) right through the, through the lungs, you know, they're going 40 yards and they're dying. Um, If you smash one in the knuckle or that deer drops a little, or you catch shoulder blade, like I want to punch through that. I don't want to, have there be a probability or increased probability for failure in the same vein though, if that deer takes a step and I hit it through like the back of the lungs or, you know, I want to make sure that I have a maximized surface area for punching it through as well. And and that my gear is dialed for that. So for the bow setup, we want to make sure that that's as, as optimized as possible. It's tuned. That also comes along with, you know, I like a multi-pin sight. Or the fact to know that the pin that is set up on there is exactly where it needs to be. Um, I will not shoot a deer over 20 yards. However, I still like to know that if that, you know, something happens, like I can adjust uh, and, and get an arrow at 30 yards or 35 yards or whatever. I just like having those, those fixed things. If you're a guy that wants to shoot a single pin because of the sight picture, totally fine. Uh, you know, just practice with it when it's set on a set yardage to then know where your holdover is to where it ends up being no different than you throwing a baseball. If somebody is like standing at a certain distance, you know, you never think, okay, that person's 23 feet away. I need to throw this ball at, you know, 22% of my capability or whatever. You just do it. Um, so that's what I'm looking for on, on, Sight stuff, and then from there, the only other component of the bow is you. And so I try to maximize my my form. I practice a lot with my grip. I want to know that that my anchor points are perfect. So I like to anchor. Uh, I shoot a handheld hold release. On, hold on, let's yeah. time up. Okay. Let's time up. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to get right there yet before I touch on a few more things on the bow because I yeah. want to go really deep into your whole anchoring and all that kind of stuff, yeah, but, yeah. but with a bow, one thing that we di- I didn't hear yet. A, uh, one thing I didn't hear about yet was the styles of bows. Now like, there's a lot of bows that are shooting for being really fast and lightweight for like a mountain hunter, or there's some that are longer, but heavier. And there's, you know, different brace heights and different things like that. And when it comes to what you're trying to do, just as quickly and effectively kill a deer and get on the ground faster and, and more consistent than anything else. What about a few of those other bow factors? Do you prefer like a longer axle to axle, which is something I hear can make you more forgiving or stable or anything on those notes when it comes to picking the right bow? Yeah. So I really, 
that kind of gets down to personal preference, I think, a lot because, um, you know, I've shot short axle to axle boat. The current trend in archery, um, or the trend in archery a while ago, had smaller cams on the bows. And so when you got those 26, 27, 28 inch axle to axle bows with those small cams on it, the string angles got really, really, really tight, especially for a guy like me who's got a over 30 inch draw length like most of them couldn't even get there uh mathematically now uh the cams are getting bigger which allow for a smoother draw cycle because they're getting more rounded right but they also that allows for a higher string angle so if you measured like the uh matthews you know 29 inch bow right now the combination of those bigger cams with that longer riser that they're able to do because these these limbs now are past parallel at at rest um it really allows you to get a much longer string angle with a shorter ata bow so if you're a guy and you're going to be whitetail hunting only um and and you know you have an under 30 inch draw length there's no problem shooting a shorter ata bow me personally, I like to have like a 30 to 33 inch ATA um, with those bigger cams on it. It's just something that I prefer. I like those those longer, um, that, that slightly wider string angle. But that being said, uh, I was shooting Billy's Botex CP28 yesterday and loved it. So, you know, because even though it's a 28 inch ATA, I think it's there's a lot more going into those string angles that allow for it to be a little deceiving when you think of just the axle to axle number, if that makes sense. So uh, it, it's really important. And this is like the age old adage of like, go to your pro shop, go shoot a bunch of bows and figure out which one that you like. Like, do not have a preconceived brand notion when you're going into the pro shop as to like, oh, I'm going to go you know, buy a whatever. It's like, man, just go figure out what, what you shoot well and what you like because um, all the options out there are great. I mean, so this year I had a lot of fun and I picked up a flagship bow from every brand. So I have the Botex, the Hoyts, um, the Elites, the Matthews, and the PSE. And they are all absolutely spectacular i mean they all have different feelings um to your point some are a little lighter obviously the lighter a bow is the more potential for vibration there is uh the heavier a bow the more mass there is to absorb vibrations so therefore you know it's more dead in hand uh generally um but just some of the technologies on the bows are spectacular uh i think that the deadlock system that's on the the bowtech is the coolest thing ever uh for tuning a bow just from the sense of um for anyone that doesn't know the 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 deadlock technology is this worm drive system so like when i'm tuning a matthews or an elite uh an elite's a bad example right now because they have some similar technology but um the new hoyts you have to shim those over so the matthews have a if you're um trying to to move the cam on the axle in order to 
uh, accommodate for like imperfect aero flight. Uh, the best way to do that is to to move the cam around a little bit. And so um, you would have to press that bow, take the cam out, take the axle out, change the, for our Matthews, the top hats around, which slightly will move that, that cam around. Um, but the Bowtech technology, it's literally just a set screw. And so I think that's really cool just because I think that will help a lot more people get more comfortable with tuning their bow because a lot of people um, are intimidated by the thought of pressing the bow, taking the axle out and, and shimming those cams around. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't whatever. Yeah, it, it's intimidating. I mean, um, it, it took a lot for me to want to do that, but the, the reason that you want to do that is once you've set the center shot of your bow with the rest. So once you have that rest at like 13 sixteenths of an inch, um, you want to keep it there because that's the main power stroke. And so by moving those cams slightly, you're still keeping that power stroke in the optimal spot. Now, once you've shimmed them around and you go out and you're, you know, you're bear shaft tuning at like 30 yards, well, like you're going to make one click on the rest. Generally, that's not that big of a deal, but really with this technology, you can move that, that cam over. I mean, like a 64th of an inch and it's no problem. So, I think that's really cool technology that is available now and it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. But, um, you know, that was a very long winded answer of go to your bow shop and shoot the bows and figure out what ATA length that, that you want. And also what, what draw weight you want, because depending on the draw cycle of the bow that you pick, some that are harsher, that are stiffer up front, you might want that to be a little lighter, a smoother drawing bow, uh, that gradually builds, you might be able to draw more weight. So that's positive as well. Yeah. So, so on this line of, you know, tweaking and tuning your setup, one thing that we haven't touched on yet, which, which is a very trendy point of discussion these days is arrows, arrow style, weight, all that kind of stuff. And then, and then broadheads too, of course, the perpetual uh, argument over broadhead styles and all that. Where, where have you settled on those? What are the criteria that you're looking for to get that, absolute most perfect effective fast killing tool yep um so arrows are obviously the most important component of your system because if regardless of how awesome your bow is if you're shooting a crappy arrow then your setup is crappy right so and that includes your your broadhead as well but um i like a very heavy arrow i like a uh, not a super micro diameter, but a the smallest diameter, uh, like a, a a medium kind of or medium small, I guess you could say. So I've been shooting the Day Six arrows. I absolutely love them for a couple of reasons. I find that they are very very straight, um, and I like their component system. And we can kind of get into to why I like that component system in a minute. But what I do is I take a blank arrow shaft. And I will spin each arrow shaft and look at the sides. And what I'm trying to do is cut the worst out of the arrows. So, um, you know, people probably don't know that when, when you buy an arrow that's a .001 arrow, well, that's only a .001 inches out of rack over, I think the standard in the industry is 18 inches of the arrow. 
So it could be way out outside of that, but at some point of 18 inches within that 32 inch arrow blank is, is, you know, 0.001 straight. Um, I believe that the only companies in the industry, I could be, I'm probably wrong about this. I'm sure somebody will email and correct this, but I know that black Eagle measures the whole arrow shaft. And I know that day six measures the whole arrow shaft. Um, and so what that leads to is a straighter arrow out of the box. If you're a guy that's got a 26 inch draw length, 27 inch draw length, it really is less relevant for you because you're cutting, you know, six or five inches out of that arrow. For me, having a 30 inch draw length, you know, I only have two inches to play with um, it out of that entire shaft that I'm cutting out. So I need to find the straightest shaft I can because the straighter it is for a starting point leads to a um, straighter finished product. So I spin them, I figure out which side, sometimes it's both sides are a little wobbly, but I, I mark where I'm cutting from. And so I'll either make one cut or two cuts, but I think a lot of guys uh, don't take the time to build their arrows out and they really should because especially if you're only shooting, you know, one deer that year, three deer that year. I mean, like that's a, a lot of effort that you're putting into your deer season and you're putting all that on the shoulders of a arrow or a couple arrows. Like, don't you want those to be the most perfect arrows possible? Um, I know I would. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's important to take the time and do it. Um, do you want me to go into the process of how I build arrows or just why I, I do it the way I do and what I use? Uh, give us like a, give us like the short ish version of how you do the build and, and why. Um, because I think there probably is a, there's a segment of folks that would be interested in getting deep on that. So let, let's hear that, but let's not do an okay. hour of it. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, once, once I mark where the worst is on the arrow, the part that's spinning out, like it's wobbling, I'll mark to cut that off. And I will either cut from one side or two sides, depending on what that shaft needs. So I just have a silver Sharpie. It's pretty easy. You just scribble on it. Um, once you cut those, it's important to square both ends of the shaft off and then clean the carbon dust out of them. And so what I'm doing, I'm squaring them off so that you know, either the knock or the broadhead that's on there is, is matching up perfectly square. The knock in is very important, obviously, because if the air energy isn't getting transferred equally onto the back, then it, it could affect the arrow flight. And then obviously the broadhead, if it's wobbling, it's not going to fly true. So very important to square those up. Uh, and then I clean out all that carbon dust because if you have a bunch of carbon dust in there, you're not going to have good adhesion of the, um, glue that goes in there. So the day six heads in particular, I like because of the fact that they have this insert outsert system. So it's an insert that goes into the carbon arrow, but the outsert collar goes on the outside. And so what that does that I really like, are two things. One, when I put that head together, I put a little bit of glue, it, it screws together the, the exterior collar and the inside. So I put a little bit of glue on that and screw it together. So they're bonded before they go in. And then what I'll do is when you put the glue in it and squeeze it in by using that insert part 
by going into the arrow, you're using the interior straightness of the arrow, which is easier to get straighter than the exterior. So you have a higher likelihood of that collar going on perfectly square. But then that exterior collar helps too, because not only is it protecting the arrow, it's holding the outside straightness. So what you're doing is you're getting a much flusher mount straight. And then what's even cooler is you get this like reverse vacuum effect when you do that. So the glue that's in there ends up squirting out on the inside of that collar. And you have this like amazing adhesion both on the inside and outside. So you know, in layman's terms, what I'm doing is I'm getting a collar that's super stuck on and very square. And, and it's just, I'm trying to make the most bulletproof arrow possible. So I'm shooting like a 525 grain arrow. Um, and I'm shooting that with about an 18% FOC. And I've found that to be a really, really good sweet spot for me. So my bows will shoot that around 275 to 280 feet per second. Um, and I just find that there's not much that that, uh, that that can hit and not be just very deadly too. Uh, there's not much it's not going to punch through, and if anything, and um, it also, you know, what people I think don't also realize is the quieter, or excuse me, the heavier your arrow is, the quieter your bow is because there's less energy that's not getting absorbed by that arrow. So, uh, and it also makes an arrow fly much truer. So. Um, again, I'm increasing my, my, my probability for a harvest, yeah. uh, and, and trying to increase my, my kind of bailout zone, if yeah. you will, by doing that. The, the final component then though, to that arrow is what you screw onto the end of it. Uh, Absolutely. what's, what's your criteria for the absolutely most effective broadhead for your type of hunt? So I've been through all different schools of thought and um on broadheads i've shot for a while i shot expandables i shot the um i shot the i I like the rear deploying expandables because i think that that uses less energy than an over-the-top expandable um however my concern with an expandable is if you hit bone you are toast generally either that blades breaking off or um you know you're not going to get penetration so if you hit back on an animal then you're great and so some guys would be like well i just need to make sure i'm not going to hit bone okay like i understand that school of thought but you can't ensure that that's going to happen right and so it i don't want to have half of the animal exposed to playing defense and actually potentially winning. So uh, I shoot a big fixed blade head. So um, when I'm looking at a fixed blade head, I really want the maximum kind of like unity on it. I want it to be as strong as possible. Uh, the two heads I really like. I, I like the day six head a lot. Um, I like the way that the blade is shaped. I like that it's solid because it, uh, there aren't vents there to catch wind and make a lot of noise. And part of the reason that I go through the tuning process that I do is to be able to shoot the biggest head possible. And also, I mean, again, I'm not shooting 
60 yards. When I go out west on a hunt, I, I will shoot a different head generally than what I'm shooting in the burbs because um, I know that like a 60-yard shot, 80-yard shot might be a, a possibility. Um, but in the burbs specifically, I like the Day 6 head. They have a, a Evo X. It's a 1.25-inch, and I shoot that with a 3-quarter-inch bleeder on it. And I mean, that puts a pretty, pretty gnarly hole through anything. Um, I also like the, uh, the slick trick heads, the grace trick twos. Um, those are an inch and a quarter by an inch and a quarter cut. And so what I've found is that you can actually get a bigger hole with those two heads than what an expandable would give you. So more blood loss, more trauma rapidly. However, um, it will also blow through bone if you hit it. And if you happen to hit an animal back or not hit one where you want it, you have more forgiveness in your, in your shot placement because of that big hole. So I, I really like a fixed blade head. Um, I shot the Ramcats for a little while. I like the Ramcats a lot, the 125 grains with the uh, bigger cutting diameter. But what I did not like about those was the blades are, are literally so big they're hard to get in and out of a quiver. And if you like pull back on one a little bit, uh, the blade will, will kind of kick back and then it's loose. So, um, I end up pulling those, those out, but the, the slick tricks are awesome. And the, uh, the day six heads are awesome as well. Uh, I really like the steel that's used in the day six heads and they are tough as hell. I had one, broadhead that i wanted to see how many critters i could shoot with it last year and i think i got into like over 20 some uh deer with one head Ooh. before it finally broke the tip uh when it blew through the deer and hit a chunk of granite on the back side of the uh, or quartz i mean excuse me on the back side of the uh deer and that broadhead went into that quartz rock and split it and when i dug oh. it out that the, the tip had broken off like like just kind of slightly very impressive for what it had done yeah um but with that setup that allows me to actually shoot deer in the lower front pocket and so i will literally like knowingly if i'm on a tight property pop that deer through its front kind of landing gear if you will so it, it renders the front legs useless and they then kind of snow plow off kind of like uh when a fighter jet lands on a uh aircraft carrier yes like that's what i'm going for is like they're using their chest to stop them uh so they don't have their front legs to where they can run off further man yeah and that's, that setup works great for that's that. a deal uh okay. last gear question a lot of talk these days about releases. It's something I've been bouncing around on a lot recently as I've been trying to change things and figure stuff out and improve my whole system. Uh, where do you land on releases and balancing the ease of use of some versus the way some will force you not to punch the trigger versus all the other criteria? Yeah, so um, I love shooting a hinge. So I shoot a handheld release. I got to shooting a handheld release because I did not like having a wrist release on my wrist to where it clank around while I'm climbing up the tree um, or have a, a potential for noise. And I also didn't want to get caught in a scenario where 
I'm playing on my phone and a deer comes in and now I have to like move my camera over, grab my bow and fish this release out of my collar or whatever. So, um, I, I love shooting a hinge, but I have yet to find a way to comfortably let my hinge like rest on my D loop while I'm hunting. Um, and so I just previously, uh, I would just hunt with a regular thumb held thumb button release and make sure I shot it well. But, um, like other people I've suffered from target panic over the years and, uh, really kind of work through that and, and we'll kind of get to that when we talk about the shooting process. But, um, I recently picked up a couple of, uh, resistance releases. So for me, my like overall theory is if I can not have to think about the back half of my shot process, whether that be squeezing a trigger or rotating a release or whatever you're doing, I can just kind of like have a, a macro feeling, if you will, in that back half. So, uh, if that for my hinge, that's just kind of like slowly pulling on my ring finger and then it just breaks. Right. Um, with a resistance release, it's just kind of pulling back, whether it's up to the individual archer, what they like to think about. But for me, I want like a big body movement back there. That's all I want to think about. Cause then I can just kind of subconsciously be doing that and aim. And so I picked up some of these newer, uh, stand resistance releases and I absolutely love them. They clip on the bow they have a safety mechanism, so I know they're not going to go off unless they um, are told to do so. And uh, for me, I can just focus on on my shot process and not have to. I'm eliminating the probability or the potential for punching the trigger, and so that to me is a big deal. But big caveat, big asterisk on that: if you're going to do that, you have to practice and put in the time. You cannot just roll out to the woods with a uh, resistance or hinge release and, and try to hunt with it. Because I think like, even for me, the first couple times that I shot deer with it, uh, there was this weird feeling of like, I know I want to shoot now, but it, it's not shooting and, um, it can make some panic set in. So, uh, if you're going to do it, I highly recommend it, but it takes time and practice before you're ready to just go climb a tree and, and hunt with them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that then. Let's talk about practice. You, you've got your bow tuned. You've got your gear set up just perfect. Uh, next thing is, is getting ready for the season and really fine tuning you, the shooter. What are you doing to take that to a different level? Yeah. So once your gear is tuned, I will not shoot an arrow, even in practice, without going through my shot process. I would rather shoot. 20 arrows in a in a shooting session that are perfect then go shoot 100 arrows where i'm actually ingraining bad habits into my 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 process because i'm just like flinging arrows right and so that's the most common mistake i see people make is they're just going out to shoot but they're not shooting with a purpose and every time you're out practicing your purpose should be kind of like honing your skill set or sharpening your, your sword, if you will, uh, for hunting. So I go through my shot process every single time that I'm shooting an arrow. And I would highly, 
highly recommend and suggest that anybody listening to this does the same because uh, it will make it that much easier to kind of flip into kill mode when you're ready to do so. Um, so when I go out shooting, I'm taking my time. I'm, I'm really focusing on my form. I'm focusing on, on my process and making sure that it's as perfect as possible. And I'm varying my yardages as well. And, and the last thing that I'll say is like practice like you play, right? I mean, I'm a big saddle hunter. Uh, I will, I have a tree set up in my yard where I climb up in the tree. I'll bring like five arrows up and I'm going to shoot five perfect arrows. I'm not trying to just bring 50 arrows up there and just fling them. Right. Um, and, and practice your weaknesses. Right. So the last thing that I want to do is have a deer come in at a certain spot when I'm in the saddle and be like, Oh no, you know, I want to have a deer stand in that spot and be like licking my chops. Like, hell yeah, I've practiced this mm -hmm. a billion times. That guy is toast. I mean, confidence is key um, in all of this. So try and kind of work through what I do is I, I figure out where I'm weakest and I practice that the most and then, um, and then practice all around. So I'll kind of like take my saddle, even if I'm only like two feet off the ground, like I'm just one stick up with my platform there. Uh, I'll clip in and I'll shoot it, you know, 10 o'clock. I'll shoot it. Nine o'clock, I'll drop around to eight. I'll throw a deer target over at like three o'clock and I'll spin around and shoot that. But I don't ever want to be in a scenario in the woods that intimidates me. I want to have the, the confidence that like if, if that deer that I'm chasing shows up, he is toast because I've put in the work and, and I know that, uh, that I'm capable of, of being successful. How much practice do you think is enough, Taylor? Like, what's that amount to keep you a finely tuned machine? Um, well, I, I think that varies by the individual. But for me, if I have a couple practice sessions a week, then I'm good. And, and I think that I'm kind of an anomaly because I'm shooting gear every week, right? So I don't ever have an off season. Um, if I did have an off season, I would say that there's a lot of work required to kind of hone your skill set and get back to um, like hunt ready form. So, but the fact that I'm able to go out and, and shoot a couple deer a week, you know, I'm always kind of at peak form, but um, people should have kind of a game plan for getting geared up for the season and, you know, develop your system, figure out what your shot process is going to be. And then I'd say shooting two to three times a week at the appropriate practice level is what would be required to get to that, that like peak performance special forces kind of hunter mindset. Mm -hmm. Now, what about, you know, practice? It's, it's interesting because there's certain elements that practice is really good for like the, the generic stand in the backyard, shoot some arrows. Like there's a certain just, you got to have your muscles, you know, feeling right. They need to be getting enough reps just so that your body can do the things it needs to do. But then there's this other side of practice, which I think is maybe a little bit more mental, which is how can you practice for the mental stress of a high pressure, real deer situation? Is there anything you do in your practice sessions um, that help you simulate and prepare for the moment of truth? 
different than just uh, yep. shooting a twenty? I think I think shooting tournament archery is the greatest way for people to put themselves under stressful situations and figure out how to perform. So, I mean, you know, there's no difference in uh, trying to shoot like a perfect 300 five spot game or going to shoot 3d with your buddies and, you know, feeling that pressure and, and wanting to be successful. So I'll shoot a lot of known 3d stuff. I mean, I'm not like a, a, uh, I don't compete in 3D tournaments, but I'll go out with my buddies and I'll bring my rangefinder and like I have my chest rig on, like I would hunt with. Uh, I'm ranging targets, I'm drawing, and I'm going through my shot process, and we're all competing. and And that kind of stress level is fantastic to put yourself in over and over again to figure out what you do under under stress, so that when the time comes you know, you're not, you're not likely to do it, or at least you, you've practiced through what your kind of flaws are. So for me, when I'm in a stressful environment, I tend to get really quick. So, um, whether that be in like, you know, tournament archery, tournament golf, whatever, like I get very quick and I try to like do it. Right. And that's where I think a lot of guys rush their shot. Mm. Um, and so I'm always just repeating, stay calm, like I'm telling myself different mantras to calm myself down and, and relax and kind of enjoy the moment. And if you think about it, like we all worked our butts off all season to get to that moment. You've planted food plots, you put in the scouting time, you woke your ass up at four o'clock in the morning, you mm-hmm. walked out to this spot. Like you did all these things for this one split second, like enjoy it savor it right and it's easy to think back on that and then and listen to it and there are a lot of guys in their car right now or mowing their yard or whatever they're like yeah yeah well uh, hopefully they're still listening they, they got through all the <laughs> deep minutia, uh stuff but you know like they're you need to enjoy that moment and uh and like really kind of tell yourself that over and over again for for when the time comes Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. 
and use promo code Meat Eater. That's promo code Meat Eater at UrgentCareKit.com slash Meat Eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. You mentioned a few times during your practice that you know, you're not going to shoot a single arrow unless you perfectly execute your entire shooting process. So what is that entire shooting process? Both the actions you take, but then also, like, is there any mo- specific mantras for different parts of your process? Are there any words or cues or anything? Like, what, what happens physically and mentally from the moment you decide, okay, I'm going to shoot this target of this animal to the moment after the arrow's gone? Yep. So it all starts with your grip. So anytime that I put my hand on the bow, you know, I know exactly where I want the pad of my thumb to be in relation to that grip. So when I'm grabbing a bow, I have a kind of a feeling where I'll slide my hand a little bit left, a little bit right to just verify that the the bow is exactly where I want it to be. So hand goes on bow. My release is on, so I I know kind of where I want that release in the channels of my fingers, and I'm really just locking in a feeling, right? And that's a feeling that can only be created by a boatload of reps and knowing where you want it. But you just want it to be in that natural, comfortable spot that you've ingrained. So I then will draw the bow, 
And again, I'm, I'm using a uh, handheld release. So with that handheld release, my pointer finger and my middle finger create like a little V. And so I'll run that V down my jawline and I'm looking for multiple points of contact or reference points to anchor, right? So I will come to full draw. My fingers go to underneath my jaw and over my jaw and they get to a, a spot where uh, you can't miss. It's where my jaw was broken because I was running my mouth at bar one night. Uh, so my <laughs> finger kind of drops into that channel. My nose goes on the string and I know that that is now absolutely perfect full draw, right? Um, from that spot, I repeat the exact same thing over and over and over again, whether it be shooting an animal, 3D target, five spot target, whatever. Uh, and I always say, the first thing I say is calm down, pick a spot. And so I will start repeating, calm down, pick a spot from the second I see a deer starting to walk in and you feel your heart rate spiking up, right? So I just keep telling myself, calm down, pick a spot, calm down, pick a spot. And I'll, I kind of like breathe in through my nose, slowly breathe out my mouth. I'm, I'm calming myself down. Um, and I know kind of subconsciously that that also is telling myself like, do not rush this, enjoy that moment, kind of all that stuff that we just talked to. So, and when I'm saying pick a spot, um, I went through some target panic for a while. I also went through like improper shot placement or, or maybe a better way to say that would be trying to perfect my shot placement and really kind of analyze like why that, what happened with that harvest and what could have made it better. Um, and so I used to aim for the exit on the animal. And I found that that was a good way to describe it. But, but what that led to for me were still some shots that I felt like I could improve on. And so what I now focus on uh, for the last couple seasons that I think is really helpful is I kind of envision the deer's legs as like little chopsticks right and they're holding up a um like a dinner plate size beach ball and so those are the vitals and i literally will envision on that deer where the where the heart is sitting and if you kind of like look with your hands and do that right now and think about a deer um anywhere they're facing you can kind of see that that little beach ball in between their legs right and so for whatever stupid reason, that visualization for me is really helpful. And so all I try to do is pop that beach ball. And so I'm saying, calm down, pick a spot, calm down, pick a spot. And I'm looking for the spot that I want to put through to absolutely annihilate that beach ball. Um, and it's funny over the years, like some camera guys that have come and hunted with me, uh, anyone that knows me, I'm like a super jovial person. Uh, I'm always kind of joking around. I'm, I'm pretty, um, you know, pretty boastful and just like a fun, playful person. And every time these camera guys are around, when I shoot a deer, they're like, dude, you went into like kill mode, mm -hmm. um, where like a switch is flipped and I'm, I am not joking around and there really shouldn't be any joking around. You're taking an animal's life and you need to do that as professionally and, and appropriately as possible. But 
like I I take it like extra seriously where I, when I'm in kill mode and um, so I'm kind of flipping that switch when I see a critter and I'm like calm down pick a spot calm down pick a spot um, and so I'm watching that beach ball I come to full draw I watch my um, you know well once I pick that spot I think of remember back in like the late nineties, uh, there's like Gulf war movies where they had the laser guided missiles. And so there'd always <laughs> yeah. be some, like some team on the ground that was like fighting to paint the target with the laser. Yeah. So yeah. I think of my, my, my pin as a laser guiding missile thing. And this is like the stupid way that, that my brain kind of associates these things. But so once I pick that spot, I do not take my eyes off of it. I mean, I might like look around and try to read the other deer around this animal's body language, but I'm burning a hole through that spot that I have picked. And so once I pick a spot, I say to myself, paint it. And so I'm painting that spot with that laser guided missile. I'm just letting it float all around that, that spot. And I'm just saying, you know, pick a spot, paint it. And I keep repeating, paint it, paint it, paint it until it's painted and I'm comfortable with my float. And this is all stuff that you pick up in, you know, heavy practice doing this. And then I say to myself, keep it painted while you pull, 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 pull. And all I'm feeling is just a very gradual pressure increase on that release as a whole. And so I know that I'm pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. And then it just, you know, next thing you know, that arrow hits home and it's just a absolutely perfect shot. And so, um, what I'm really doing is I'm trying to, I'm, I'm focusing on my follow through by telling myself to keep it painted while you pull, 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 pull. And I just repeat pull until the shot breaks to prevent myself from rushing it. Do you ever find yourself in the midst of that or leading into that and still feeling nerves or buck fever or any of that increased adrenaline is there anything else you do when all of a sudden like something feels different or have you done this enough that it never feels different and that process always addresses any physical aspects of excitement so i mean i'm the day that i shoot a deer and i feel nothing i will never shoot another deer um because i feel like i've crossed over into some scary realm there (laughs) if that happens right but like um, you know, we're out there for the hunt and for the, for the enjoyment and the harvest is a part of that hunt. Um, I, I feel, I, I get butterflies, whether it's my first or, you know, hundredth plus deer of the year. Like I'm, I'm feeling those nerves. I'm feeling those butterflies. I'm feeling that adrenaline by repeating those mantras. I find it prevents me from letting my subconscious kind of kick in and start being like, Whoa, don't do this. Don't do that. Right. Like you're, you're able to kind of suppress the potential negative stuff by focusing on, on your actions. And so, um, yeah, I played golf in college. We did a lot of stuff with like sports psychologists and they always say, uh, that focusing on the process is the best way to deal with stress and, uh, deal with high pressure environments. And so I'm immersing myself in the process of picking the spot, burning a hole through it with my eyes, painting it with my pen, and then pulling, 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 pulling uh, to prevent any 
negative or, or like thoughts creeping in that I don't want to have. However, uh, and, and that really helps with that buck fever, target panic. And, you know, the last thing you want to do is see like some giant 160 come in and be like, oh man, like when I put him on my wall, I can't wait <laughs> yeah. to call my buddies. I'm yeah, going to do him with like a semi, a semi sneak pose. Like, like <laughs> you need to focus on, on the process at hand, immerse yourself in it and worry about all that other crap later. Um, you know, do not, do not just, um, you know, get ahead of yourself. But yeah, I mean, I feel all kinds of butterflies and jitters and, and everything. And, and something else that I think is really important to note is the entire time I'm going through this process, like I've had, you know, over a decade now of, um, of, of a lot of deer encounters and harvests. And I am always reading deer's body language. Like even if I'm seeing deer that are, uh, maybe they're deer, they're like 80 yards off. They're not going to come in. I picked the wrong tree, but I'm just watching these deer. Or maybe they're deer in a field. Like I'm always looking at those deer and trying to, to read their body language and analyze what they're doing because that has a lot to do with, with taking a shot or uh, where, to, where to place that shot, right? Like, so if a deer comes in and it looks really skittish or is, is like, you know, maybe it's feeding a little and popping its head up real quick. It's, it's looking like a, a crackhead DC deer. Like you need to, to be mindful of that to where when you shoot that, like, first off, you can knock it away with, with as much movement as you think. So that's going to affect you. But also like, I know I might want to tuck that arrow just a little lower in my spot picking because that deer might drop a little or, Maybe that deer is going to like slightly quarter away and I know it's been picking its head up and down, head up and down. And like when it goes down, I know now's my time to like take the shot. It's very important to analyze the deer body behavior and, and kind of like try to figure out what deer are communicating by their actions, because that says a lot on how that deer is going to react at that split second when you uh, shoot it. And you know, it's in, that goes into your shot placement and also selection. And, and that gets back full circle to those deer that, that we saw when we were in the tree together mm-hmm. here in D.C. I was like, that that deer is so skittish that there is a high probability for a marginal hit. And, like, I, we just can't risk that, um, you know, with, with what's going on. So I'm, I'm always kind of reading that deer's body language and trying to figure out what's going on kind of with my subconscious. And I think that the combination of that and repeating my my mantra over and over again really helps, um, like execute and and suppress any buck fever or butterflies or jitters or whatever you're feeling. Let's dive a little more into the body language thing. Um, mm-hmm. First off, you 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 gave me an example of this, but can you describe for me? Are there any behaviors or indications of a deer that's going to be too flighty where you will say, okay, based on this body language, I'm just not going to shoot. Even if the deer's in range, even if you could take the shot, is there a situation where you're reading the deer and you're saying, man, this just seems ill-advised? Is there anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I'm always looking for, for that deer that's being super skittish. Right. And, and I think of that as like, uh, like a, 
like a tweaker almost. You know, they're kind of like, oh, oh, hey, yeah, yeah. picking their head up, moving around, moving around. Like they're constantly, they're quartering too. They're quartering away. They're moving this way. They're, they're looking at the deer around them. Um, you know, that deer to me is like already amped up and, uh, you know, could, could spin at the shot a little. And, you know, look, I've shot plenty of deer that have been that way. Like that's how I know that they might run a little further. They might already have a little adrenaline in their system. There might be, it's amazing how much a deer at 14 yards can move from when you have that shot break to where the arrow hits. Like it's, it's unbelievable. Like just watching it on footage and, and knowing where my pin was when, when I've let a shot break versus where the entrance and exit hole are. Right. And so, um, you have to take that into account of either not shooting the deer or aiming for it. But, and, and the reason that I've gotten to where I, I won't shoot that deer sometimes is for whatever reason, sometimes there's deer that you think are going to drop. Don't. And then you now hit them low or, or somewhat low. Um, you know, you, you, I'm always looking for those tweaker deer that are quartering to quartering away, bouncing around, picking their head up real hard, watching their ears go back. And sometimes if you let that deer just, just like kind of walk around and feed around, especially, you know, I'm thinking early season on an Oak flat, you know, you, in, in, particularly in my area, who knows what that deer just encountered. There could have been, that deer could have just run in from 500 yards away where some, some kids were walking the dog and it's it kicked the deer up and they're like, well, now I'm going to go feed anyways because I'm already here. Right. Um, and sometimes that deer will settle down and ends up being a, a perfect time to, to shoot it. So you just never know. And, and you're better off just kind of letting it settle down or maybe it caught your scent and maybe it's going to blow. Um, you know, that's something though that you need to take into account. If that deer comes in and it's looking tweakerish, but it's licking its nose and it's looking all around, that's a deer that you might want to shoot right away because it probably got your scent. So that body language is, would be different, right? It's licking its nose. It's kind of working its ears back and forth. It, it knows something's wrong. Um, you know, that would be a different scenario of a deer that might fit into that, that quote unquote tweaker status uh, that, that is, you know, more likely than not an older mature animal that you certainly want to get out of there. So, just reading that body language and looking for different cues, tail up, tail down, flicking, tucked hard tight, you know, what the ears are doing, what they're doing with their, with their mouth, if they're, you know, licking their nose a bunch, um, or if they're kind of feeding along, but, but popping their head up and down, those will be all signs of, you know, what's this deer doing? Why is it acting that way? Um, those are all important things. And then on top of that, to take it one step further, uh, we have CWD in our area. So if a deer comes in acting super weird, it's drooling around, like it looks like unhealthy messed up. That's something else I want to pay attention to because that's certainly a deer that I want to go get tested and make sure that, um, that there wasn't something you know, wrong with it from a disease standpoint. Yeah. Uh, back to the tweaker deer. So we've got a deer that's on edge in some way or form. Maybe it's mm-hmm. picked up on us or smell. Maybe it's just uncomfortable for one of those other reasons you described. When we have that situation and we're thinking about where to aim, 
do we adjust? Do you recommend adjusting your shot placement at all on this deer that seems on edge? Because I think the the assumption is that if we have a deer on edge, that deer is more likely to react a little bit quicker to the shot. And so that might mean a, a jumping the string kind of motion, or that might mean a deer that's whirling and spinning away in some kind of way. So do you do you adjust a little bit down? Like some, I know some people aim lower on a deer that they think might yes. jump the string, or some people might even aim a little bit further off of the blade, the shoulder blade, because that deer might swirl and spin one way or another and give you more of a chance of hitting bone because of that. Does any of that enter your equation? Absolutely. And that's where your practice comes in as well, because if you're just shooting your, your 3d deer target all the time, like perfect rate increase, um, well, that's great, you know, but deer in the real world, you need to aim differently on depending on that body language. Right. And so that kind of reverts all the way back to pick a spot, pick your target. Right. And so if that deer is at, let's say that tweak at 14 yards, she's super sketched out. Um, I, I've made the decision though, that even though she's on edge, I'm going to harvest her. And so I'm going to aim at, at 14 yards. I know she's going to dump the string a little, she's going to jump the string a little bit. Uh, I don't have to hold off body though. I'm going to hold, I'm always aiming in that lower third to pop the balloon. Uh, I might aim like an extra couple inches low. If we were out on a farm somewhere. Uh, to where I, where the, yeah, if I had to take a shot at, let's say 35 yards and, and even though I don't do that in the suburbs, but let's say that in this scenario, for whatever reason I am, um, and that deer is, is tweaker deer. It's, it's jumpy, uh, but it's a giant buck. And, you know, this is the, the deer we've been after all week in Iowa and it's now or never, right. That this encounter is now or never, but he's a little skittish. I mean, you might need to hold eight inches below his brisket, right? And that's where having trust in your your read on that animal as well as uh, trust in your equipment is absolutely, like, essential because it is very hard to hold off, bar, off body on an animal, right? Um, you would really do even, that? Yeah, if the deer is at like 35 yards, I mean, maybe not eight inches, but I'm going to hold probably put my pin just below his brisket. Um, and I'll guarantee you that he'll duck into that and, and take it. Yeah. At there, it, it's, it, I mean, that's just something that comes with shooting a lot of critters. Because, right. I mean, how many, how many deer shows have you seen where they get to where they're, they shoot the animal and they put the little dot on where it would be perfect. And then the arrow sails over his back. Yeah. And the deer can drop an entire body length, yeah. body, body width in a matter of seconds. And also is their head up or their head down. You know, if, if they have their head positioned down, they can whip it up and use that, that, that effect to drop their body even lower. Um, so you kind of, these are all things that you have to take into account that are very difficult to take into account in the process of, of shooting an animal. Um, in hindsight, it's always twenty twenty, but you just kind of need to, to think through these, these little things. And I mean, frankly, that scenario that we just went through with Megabuck in Iowa, that's why most 35 yard shots are not super successful on an animal 
um, or they're harder to be successful on animal. I mean, obviously people shot deer at much further distances than that. It's not like an impossible shot, but there are a lot more probabilities for failure or things that can happen in that additional 21 yards between our two scenarios. Like that's an eternity for a deer. Uh, so more on shot placement. You mentioned in the past, you've got the, the legs are like chopsticks and then you've got this yeah. dinner plate sized ball that's on top of the chopsticks. Can you, can you just give me a little more detail? Like when you're, how you get to that point, like how do you get to that place when you're actually looking at a deer? Do you look at the legs and bring your pin up the leg and then just go off a little bit or, or how do you pick that perfect place to put your pin? So the, the, the dinner plate is actually being held up by the chopsticks. So think of it like you're eating sushi and the sushi is you're picking up a piece of sushi, right? Um, the shoulder blades, you this analogy, anatomy, this analogy works in DC. It might not work as well as in rural <laughs> Iowa, but people try to follow right. along here. Taylor's. So you, you got your chicken nugget, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're going in the sauce. No. Um, so, I mean, if you think about our anatomy <clears throat> or deer's anatomy, like your shoulder blades are, are shields, right? And that breastbone, it, it's all protecting your vitals. And so those shoulder blades are holding up the they're protecting the heart really um so i think of those those shoulder blades as the the tips of the chopsticks if you will that are holding that little beach ball um so i kind of i i look at it in almost like a 3d way but if you're if you're thinking of it of where do you want your arrow to exit well you pretty much always want it to exit on the in like the lower third to come out through that little golden triangle or um, to kind of blow out right above where the, the bone kind of cuts back on a 45 of its shoulder. So um, I'm, I'm picking a spot in that lower third uh, kind of like right in that, in that crease exit spot. But sometimes depending on what the way the air, the deer is quartered, you know, and this is where popping that that beach ball uh, comes in really handy. Like I want to pop the low third of that beach ball, if that makes sense. Um, and it's kind of a weird analogy. I'd have to almost like draw it out of, of how it works in in my head. But if you think of those like milk jug tests that people do on YouTube for broadheads, where they put like red food coloring in, mm-hmm. like I want to I want to put a hole in the lower part of that deer's milk jug or the the beach ball to try and deflate it as fast as possible yeah and because of your arrow setup and because of your broad head you are willing to be very tight to that shoulder blade area because you know that that's the most effective spot to hit them as long as you can punch through bone if you have to is that right like some people will will be very cautious and aim further back and just aim for back of lungs or center of lungs because they want to avoid the the bones entirely you're not doing absolutely that. correct. And I used to do that. And that led to, to a little more issues. Now I'm not intentionally trying to shoot a deer in the shoulder. I will never tell someone to do that in, unless it's a tiny property. And, you know, we're, we're doing my analogy of, I'm trying to take the landing gear out, but even when I try to take the landing gear out, or when I do take the landing gear out, you know, I'm not shooting them through the shoulder. I'm hitting them in that like little void 
right at the top of their legs below the shoulder bone where, or maybe like through the very bottom part of it, but where it's not very, it's not super strong. Um, you know, I, I think that the shoulder blade should be avoided at all costs. However, I've just put together a setup that I know can punch through the shoulder if it has to. Yeah. And I think that's really important, <clears throat> excuse me, really important um, to, to have. Because if I did that, if I took that shot with an expandable broadhead, there is a high, high, high probability for failure there, right? Like there's a, there, there's a incredible margin for error that I'm not comfortable with. Um, and that's why taking that shot with a fixed blade head uh, that has a big cutting diameter really works well. And it has a blade designed for penetration. You know, some of these uh, fixed blade heads don't work in that regard because they're, you know, have a steep blade angle. And if they hit something hard, they're probably not going to punch through it very far. So avoid the shoulder at all costs, but I'm comfortable being tight to it because I know that I'm practiced. I also know that it's like a 12 to 14 yard shot and that there is a 99.9% chance that I'm hitting, you know, within a, a couple millimeters of the hair that I'm staring at. Yeah. Uh, quartering two shots, given everything we've talked about, will you ever take a quartering two shot? And if you do, how do you adjust your point of, of aim? So I really do not like quartering two shots, um, you know, on a, on a white tail, especially in an urban environment. You know, if you're on, if you're hunting from the ground and, and you're, you know, on your farm in Missouri or wherever, like if you want to shoot them in the throat, go for it. But you need to be really comfortable with the understanding of a deer's anatomy. And so that same line of thought of the shoulders and the breastbone are protecting the vitals. Well, <laughs> think about your area to slip an arrow into if that deer is staring at you versus if that deer were quartering away 45 degrees. Like all the goodies are exposed if that deer is quartering away slightly very few areas are exposed to slip an arrow into if it's, you know, corded towards you. Um, however, that being said, like I shot a deer in Oklahoma last year that came in that was almost at the base of our tree. And I mean, I shot him almost straight down between his shoulder blades and down through his heart. And he died on the spot. Um, now I was comfortable taking that shot because, you know, one, I'm highly experienced at, at uh, shot placement, but two, there were like 12 deer around us and we were in this tiny little tree, myself and a camera guy. And I mean, there was a, a high likelihood that we were going to get busted if that deer didn't get shot right then. And so, you know, while that wasn't us forcing it, you also need to know when there is an opportunity you need to feel comfortable in seizing it at with appropriate timing. Yeah. Uh, okay. Here's another example of a tricky situation. Moving deer. You've got a buck coming through. There's a shooting lane. It's your only shooting lane and he's going to walk through it. Would you ever take a moving shot or is it always that you stop a deer and shoot it? Like, how do you handle that? Yeah, I am not comfortable taking a moving shot. I really prefer to have an animal stop on its own. Um, because 
you know, it, when you shoot a deer that's like feeding through uh, an area or kind of slowly walking through on their own pace, they're much calmer than they are when they're slowly feeding through and they think they're all alone. And then all of a sudden it's like that, <laughs> like, you know, that deer is going like, what the hell? I mean, uh-huh. Imagine if you're in your backyard, you know, just dicking around and all of a sudden it's somebody yells out for you. You'd be like, whoa, like yeah. somebody's here. What's going on? Um, similar, similar thing with the deer. So I try to not make any noise. However, if an animal's moving and I need to stop it, I will most certainly bleat at them very softly, like a, a very soft, like meh, meh. I've never taken a shot at a moving deer. I mean, uh, I guess I should never say never, uh, cause who knows what the future holds, but I would strongly, uh, encourage people to not take a shot at a moving animal that that to me just seems like a recipe for disaster uh or or definitely you know i think if people have made it this far in the episode they understand that i'm like a big um probability guy like i like to have the odds in my favor and that seems like something where the odds are uh, very firmly stacked against you yeah is there is there any other element of in the tree preparation that leads to an accurate, successful shot. I mean, is there anything, maybe we need to rewind a little bit in the day, you know, we're up in the tree. Is there anything that you do like right when you get settled, as far as where you place your bow, as far as where you, I don't know, organize your setup? Does any of that help you perform in the moment of truth better? Or is there anything else that we're missing? Well, I think that that kind of, helps you stay calm in the pro in the time leading up to the shot. You know, like my bow is always in the same spot. My pack is generally in the same spot. I know where my release is. My range finder is always in the same spot. So when I climb up in the tree, my bow's there, my pack set up. The first thing that I'm doing once my, once everything is set up is I'm pulling my range finder out and what I'll do is like, I like to look at a spot and I just guess how far away it is. And then I range it and then I'll, you know, I'm picking out kind of my 20 yard circle of death that I know that if a critter crosses into they're in in trouble. Um, And the reason that I play that little game with myself is I just find that that helps me be very accurate in guessing a yardage. But I know that where I'm like, okay, that big white oak tree right there is, is 21 yards away. If a deer crosses inside it, you know, their top penalty, their smoke. Um, or I'll be like, okay, that tree over there is 35 yards away. And I also like to drop um, milkweed. And I'm always kind of looking at where the, where the wind is, is pulling my scent. So I know that like, okay, if a deer comes in on this angle and it's working towards that wind, I need to shoot it before it catches my wind and possibly blows out of here. Or, if I know that a deer is at my 12 o'clock, but I have, you know, three does working in from, from like across my backside there, well, they might catch my wind if they're in a certain pocket. So kind of knowing your area and knowing the yardages and also what's happening around you is key. And, and the other thing that leads to a lot of success is having your spots prepped. So, I mean, I do a lot of run and gun hunting. I might end up in a, in a tree that uh, I've never hunted before, never been in before, but I generally like to have my trees picked out and have some shooting lanes prepared so that I 
don't feel like a major rush or or panic that sets in when a deer appears because you know if you it's like murphy's law if if you haven't cut shooting lanes then you have a 100 percent chance that those deer are gonna like go directly to where you can't shoot them and and so true uh and you know it's like murphy's law is always tagging along so you need to not have that like terrible panicky feeling of like oh no no i need to shoot that deer right now uh well if you have shooting lanes you're like okay that deer's toast like he's working right towards that other shooting lane that i have prepared and perfect you know he has there's cover between shooting lane a and shooting lane b to where i can you know do whatever i need to do to get my bow in hand come to full draw get myself situated to where i can take the shot yeah so here's here's a here's a so well rather than stating my assumption i'll 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 paint a picture i guess of what of something i think that happens a lot today and i'm curious in your thoughts about this because i think this ties directly into why you are the perfect person to talk about these things because of the world you live in and the 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 lifestyle you've chosen but here's a scenario that i think is pretty common these days more and more folks watch and consume and listen to media in the hunting world with people who are targeting big old bucks all right they're all about holding off for a five-year-old or they're holding off for a 150 or whatever and they hunt in iowa or they hunt in missouri and there's big deer like that but the average even great hunter in a great circumstance like that that might lead to one shot opportunity a year for these hunters and then there's newer hunters coming up in the world who watch that who listen to that who then start thinking well i've got to hold out for a five-year-old buck or i need to hold out for a pope and young deer and it leads to them having very few shot opportunities maybe ever in a whole year uh, I've got a I've got a number of friends like this. I've got a buddy who wanted his first buck he shot with his bow to be like a really really big buck, and so he went over a decade without shooting anything because of that. Is that a good recipe for becoming efficient and effective with your shot process and executing in prime time high pressure situations? Right, I know the answer to this, but. I want your take on that scenario. If you worry about that scenario that a lot of people probably are living in and what they're missing out on, and is there maybe a different approach that could get people more effective? Yeah. I mean, that's like trying to be Mark McGuire without going to batting practice, right? Mm-hmm. Like, or, or trying to be like Tom Brady and, and only playing in playoff games. Like you, you have to, there's no way really to replicate the stress and all of the different factors that come together to result in a successful hunt. Uh, You know, you have to immerse yourself in it over and over and over again in order to just understand what you and your body does at the moment of truth and prepare for that. And I think that's part of what makes shooting a giant buck so special. That's what makes you want to mount it or, or like European mount it, whatever, like is the fact that it's so hard and so rare. And I do think a lot of people sometimes get a skewed perspective of 
of how hard it is because of the content that we consume, right? And and what we're consuming, it's entertainment. Like, you know, people aren't watching or, or really thinking about the amount of time and effort and hard work that the Lukoskis or the Drury's are putting in or, you know, even like guys that know like, you know, our buddy Andy May, right? They're like, oh man, Andy's so efficient. Like he kills giants. Like he's just, He's the greatest hunter, and, and he is, and he's a phenomenal hunter. But Andy puts in so much time and effort during the season, but also the, the past decade and 15 years that he's put in, in in becoming you know, the hunter that he is today. And people don't see that and, and, and think about all the, the pieces that come together to make that complete package. So – you know, for guys that are out there that, that are listening to this that want to be, you know, a better hunter, you just have to go through the, the process and, and put yourself in that scenario, I think, to to learn where your faults might be and and then how to improve on them when you're looking at specifically just the the factors that go into your form and, and shooting the deer, let alone getting in on a deer and having the opportunity to shoot it. So, yeah. you know, there, there's nothing wrong with challenging yourself and, and just trying to, you know, progress as a hunter, like get in tight on animals and figure out like how you can get closer and continue doing that. I mean, you know, you don't even have to shoot them if you don't want to, you can just come to full draw and, and float your pin there and just think about it and, and see what your body does. Like your body will, freak out you will get that adrenaline dump if you live somewhere where you only have you know one tag and you choose not to use it like that's fine but um i think people need to realize like like you need to hunt for yourself and not hunt for social media fame or like trying to keep up with the joneses or the people next you know the other people in the industry because it's just it's apples to oranges you're not hunting the same land you don't have the same experience and, and you need to just like go out and enjoy it for yourself and put some food on the table would you would you say though that a lot of people would probably benefit from becoming a little bit more like you and simply shooting more deer so instead of thinking that you're going to hold out for one 170 every year and that's all you do maybe there's more hunters that should consider shooting a bunch of does every year or maybe lowering their standards a little bit so they can finally get good at shooting year and a half old or two and a half year old bucks and actually really be good at that before they try to shoot for that one 170 and have a whole lot of dead time in between where they never get better at handling the moment of truth. Is that something you would agree yeah, with? I, I, yes. I think that, um, you know, I don't want to tell anybody like what to set their goals for or whatever. Like everybody wants to shoot a, a booner. I'd love to have a giant 190 inch typical deer sitting here on my wall. Right. Look, I don't, um, but I have, you know, 15 years of pretty awesome experiences and, and, um, you know, confidence to know that at some point when that 190 slob comes walking into my life, he is toast. Like yeah, he you- picked the wrong 240 pound squirrel with sharp sticks <laughs> to walk in front of yeah. it's because I know what I'm doing. And, and, you know, I think that a lot of people would really benefit, um, 
in shooting does and becoming the most like proficient harvester and, and hunter that they can be like master your world and, and try and, and perfect it. And, you know, I also think it's important to keep the mindset of, of always trying to better yourself. Like, I, I don't think that I'm any like expert on this stuff. I just have done it a lot and I'm super anal and analytical to where I'm always striving to be better. But I, I don't, I don't think I've like perfected it. I'm still trying to get my gear better. I'm still trying to continue tuning my stuff, you know, even more, see if there's a way that I can be more efficient. Like I, I try to never stop learning and have that mindset. Um, Cause I think once you just like think that you've mastered it, that's when you begin to regress uh, and, and nobody should ever kind of think in that manner. Yeah. All right. If, if there was just one thing, let's say someone did listen to all of this, but they've got very poor short-term memory <laughs> and you could pick just one single takeaway because we want, we want everyone listening to come away from this with a chance of being more accurate and effective when they shoot at a deer this coming fall. If there's just one thing you want them to do. What would that one very most important thing? It could be something we've talked about. It could be something we've forgotten to talk about. But if there's one takeaway you want everyone to hammer into their brain and not forget and actually do it, what's that one thing? Without a doubt, to figure out some step process to take when they're shooting. And that could be as simple as like a one part mantra of like squeeze, squeeze, squeeze or whatever. But create a process that you're going to go through in shooting an animal or target like when you put carbon in the air have a process that you go through and slow down and go through that process every single time that you put carbon in the air whether you're shooting a target a you know whatever you're shooting at take that because that for me was the biggest leap in all of my growth as a hunter, that one made the biggest difference. And it's hard. It's easy to say, but it's hard to be out there in the summertime right now with your bow and not playing arrows. Like you need to, to think through whatever process you develop, whether it's mine or Andy Mays or Levi Morgan's. Like, and you know, in talking to all those guys, they do the same thing. Right. Like when I talk to Levi about his process or Andy about his process, like it's funny how similar they all are. We use different words that we're telling ourselves. And Mark, I think when you and I talked about this, you have a process that you go through as yep. well. Right. Yep. So, and, and, um, would you say that you had a, a pretty drastic increase in, uh, proficiency when you started implementing that process? Well, so I've had stages. So, so first, when I first started using some kind of mantra within, I had an improvement in effectiveness. And then over a couple, the last, I don't know, three, four years, I've regressed and had some like target panic issues. And so now I've rebuilt that. And so I'm now dedicating myself even more to really stringently tying verbal cues to that process so that I can't get 
into that speeding mode where it sounds like you've had some similar issues where I will shortcut it sometimes and speed through it because I'm not locked in on each step as perfectly as I need to be. So this year I'm trying even harder to develop ways to ingrain that so that I can't skip a step. So I can't rush. I need like speed bumps along the way to maintain control. So that's, that's what I'm really trying to hammer in ever, more than ever before this year. Yeah. And I think that's something that like back to our, our earlier discussion of like guys that just want to go out and sit in a tree until a 170 appears, whether that's a decade long quest or not, like that person that does that will never know the steps in between of improving the process. And so like, while you're honing the skill set by, by three years and four years of going through repeating that mantra and then going like, you know, I was saying this, but I'm going to say this instead because that has a better result for me. Like that's the growth along the way that leads to making you a better person and that, and that is a better hunter. And, uh, I think that's a really important step to take that you don't want to skip over. Yeah. Yeah. Never stop improving. I like, that's the truth. Well, my friend, I knew this would be good. It was, I've had fun. I've learned some stuff. If folks want to see more of what you're doing, where can they find that? Yep. Uh, you can find me on YouTube, uh, as hunt urban or on Instagram as urban Bowman. So check it out. Um, and hopefully you guys enjoy. I'll also add to that Taylor. They will also soon be able to find you on the meat eater YouTube channel where, uh, our first episode of my new whitetail show that I filmed last fall is going to start airing and that first episode should be, barring some kind of unforeseen change, should be airing in early September. So we'll get to uh, relive our wild urban DC hunt together here very shortly. I can't wait. I'm uh, very excited to uh, to watch that unfold. That was certainly a fun time. And uh, I'm sure that you're pretty glad that you don't have to go knock on doors and get permission <laughs> Uh, in this area anymore right now. Yeah, man, I'm glad I did. I glad I experienced it, but I'm not too keen on spending a whole another day doing it again soon. <laughs> I, I don't have to worry about you coming down uh, and poaching any properties, huh? At least not in the short term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's oh, awesome, man. man. Thank you again for having me on. Uh, it's always a pleasure, and uh, hopefully this helps some people out there uh, put more critters on the ground either this year or in the future. I know it will, man. Thank you. All right, and that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure to check out all of Taylor's content. The guy's a great dude. He does good work. He's got a lot of great content out there. So follow him wherever you can. And just one last reminder, remember we've got those July Wired Hunt gear picks over on the Wired Hunt page. Check those out as well if you need something new for your summer shooting. And with that out of the way, thank you for listening. Thanks for being part of this community. We are getting close, guys and girls. It is July. That means next month is August, which means there are deer hunting seasons opening soon, people. I can't believe it. I'm getting very excited. It's going to be a good year. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop. 
that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.